0: We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless this gathering and to increase us in our love for him and for his messengers and his family and his followers and those righteous people that have come before us. Ameen. Uh, Just as a review the the topic of, of these sessions is uh, spending time thinking about the life of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam but not in a kind of traditional historical uh, linear fashion but rather to spend time studying the poem uh, which is called al-burda of imam busiri and uh, for anyone that's new the short version of that is that the burda is uh, the most famous of a long tradition of poetry praising the Prophet wa them. and this is going to continue for a while so uh, depending on how things develop we'll see how long it takes but it will continue for a while inshaAllah and the idea as you mentioned last time as well is not only to focus directly necessarily on what the poem is saying but also to take the, the um, The subtleties or kind of like the things that are referenced in the poem and use those as opportunities to jump off into other topics so last time we spent a lot of time talking about memories we spent a lot a lot of time talking about uh, how we deal with space we spent time talking about neighbors and all of that was not directly directly in the poem i mean it's mentioned in the poem but it's not the poem wasn't telling us why neighbors are important or why memories are important or anything like that That's just an opportunity So when we say that we're going to spend a lot of time on the poem Don't get scared uh, It's going to go in a lot of different directions Inshallah So we'll start with the second line today um, In the second line of the poem, Imam al-Busiri uh, Say, ameen I'll translate for you. Said so that the Imam said in the line of this poem, May Allah bless him and us through his knowledge in this life and the next. Ameen. This is kind of like a Azhari tradition. You don't start studying a text. Anytime you study the text, you have to make dua for the author, Otherwise, it's considered to be bad manners. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept from him and bless us by his knowledge, inshaAllah. Uh, the second line says, Um هَبَّتَ Rihu min تِلْقَاءِ So this line says, "Or has the wind blown before from Canaima, it's a place, and the lightning flashed in the in the darkness from the direction of Idom?" So what's happening in this line is the interrogation is continuing. So if you recall last week, the interrogation began, where the poet is interrogating himself. And last week was Amin Talekuri Jiran Bidemi, that is it because of your remembering the neighbors that you used to have in Salam that your eyes are running with tears that are mixed with blood. And this was we said like the beginning of his interrogation as to what is going on. And and these poems always start with a love story. And the love story in this case we have in the first line as we said uh, an indication that this love story is about love of the Prophet وسلم, and that in this second line we have two indications of that in the locations that are mentioned. So he says again is continuing it is it from this or is it from this or is it from this that you're crying as much as you are? Is it because of you're remembering your neighbors? Or is it because of the breeze, the wind that is coming from the direction of Kailzimah, this place? Or is it because of the lightning that uh, struck and you saw that flash of light from the direction of Idum which is another place so there's three questions uh, in the line of interrogation some people said that the name of this is actually Medina so there's some debate on where this location is but some people said that this location is Medina itself uh, and for Idum they said that this is a mountain or a valley area close to Medina so the point is in all of these that they're all going back to the masjid or the the, the city of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So it's all this is where uh, this is where all of the memories and everything else are associated with the beloved. It's in the city of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And uh, that's why, you know, one interesting side point is that on the question of what's the most beloved earth to Allah. Right? We have three holy places, obviously. We have the Masjid and, and, and Haram in, Me- in Mecca, and you have the Haram in Medina, and then you have the Haram in Jerusalem. You have the, the Holy Masjid in all three of these places. I say, so what is the most beloved piece of earth to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala? So, what do you think the answer is? Hmm. Any? It's, it's an educated guess. Any educated guesses? Yeah. Where the Prophet is buried. Yes, <laughs> That's it. This it's not Mecca. Usually, technically it's Mecca. Like as a city, Mecca is the most beloved place to Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala. But as an actual place, place, the place of the burial of the Prophet SallAllahu Alaihi Wasallam trumps Mecca because this is the the resting place of the body of Rasulullah SallAllahu Alaihi Wasallam. So all of the memories of the Prophet SallAllahu Alaihi Wasallam are going back to this place. And I was just reading today, SubhanAllah, about one uh, Shaykh. You always see the most amazing things from the scholars of hadith. When it comes to the Prophet ﷺ, the scholars of hadith are very particular because they spend so much time with the hadith that they gain a very deep... uh, it's just they start to act differently. And uh, like Imam Malik was said, you know when you go to Medina now and they have the gate around the masjid and everything inside the gate is marble, right? right? So, everything that's inside the gate is actually the old city of the Prophet. That was the whole thing. That was all of Medina. That whole area up to the gate, everything that's marble was the city of the Prophet. And, uh, you know, so it's 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 actually, they help us a little bit that you can follow some of the etiquettes that some of the scholars used to follow by laying these things out. Like Imam Malik, an, he wouldn't walk with it, he would take his shoes off when he came into the area of. Of where the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi used to live And the areas of the companions Where they used to live and all of this Like once he gets to the edge Of what used to be the city He'd take his shoes off They ask him what are you doing He's like I can't Because this is where the Prophet Sallallahu used to live uh, One of the sheikhs The sheikh that I was reading about today Sheikh uh, Yusuf Jampur I think is uh, Was his name He said that he also would take off his shoes um, He also said a number of other amazing things But one of them was that and he's you know, he's like a modern contemporary scholar, said that he doesn't go into Baqiyah, you know the graveyard where so many of thousands and thousands of the companions of the Prophet are buried, as well as many, many scholars throughout history, and he doesn't go into Baqiyah. What he does is he stands outside the gates and he makes dua for them from outside the gates. So they asked the Shaykh, they're like, Why do you do that? He said, Because the the initial roads You know the initial walkways in the cemetery used to be much wider, or much narrower, sorry. The initial roads in the cemetery used to be much narrower. But because of all these visitors to the cemetery, and all the people that come to Medina, they had to widen the walkways. And he said, it's very possible that when they widened the walkways, they weren't paying attention, and they put the walkway to actually run over one of the graves of a number of the sahaba. It's possible. He said, so rather than running the risk of walking on the walkway, and thereby walking over the grave of one of the companions of the Prophet, ﷺ, I'd rather stand outside the cemetery and make du'a. Right, this is all out of love of the Prophet ﷺ and respect for these people. And so the love is all attached to that city. One thing you find when you go to Mecca and you go to Medina and you find that Mecca is very tough. It's just like the seerah, subhanallah. The city is very tough. It's rough, it's 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 difficult. It's not the same. When you go to Medina, as soon as you enter Medina, you feel the sakina of the Prophet You feel like the tranquility of the Prophet sallallahu presence. It takes over. I mean, I remember even the time when we were there, there was construction that was going on, like, just outside the masjid. And it was ajib. Like, as soon as you walk into the gates of the compound, you don't hear the construction. This is not, not, not like... I'm not... People who know me, I'm not into... Like, I don't do these exaggeration type things. Like, literally, you would not... Hear it. Was, it was very, very uh, subhanAllah. And you see people all the time, They you know, there's a brother the other day, I was in a masjid and it was in between like programming and stuff and nobody was there. So he's like, What are you going to do? I said, You know, I'm going to read a little bit, I'm going to take a nap. And he's like, You like to take naps? I said, Yes. And I love to take naps in the masjid. It's the best nap. <laughs> Some of these masajid, they put up these signs, there's no sleeping in the masjid and all this stuff. It's completely. I don't know where they got that from, other than they just want to control what people do in the masjid. People used to sleep in the masjid of the Prophet, it's like clearly established in the hadith. So no one was there anyway, so I said, I'm going to take a nap, you know. And then we started talking about, like, but you know what the best nap, even this, the masjid nap is the best nap. Out of the masjid naps, what's the best nap? So the nap in the masjid of the (laughs) Prophet, and it's true. If you ever go, if you're a woman, I mean, you pretty much get oppressed. Uh, the visits to Medina are not the most, uh, it's, it's kind of painful, you know, like getting into the Rolda is a mess, getting any sort of decent space in the masjid of the Prophet's them is a mess, but if you get the opportunity, anyone to take like a quick nap in the Prophet's them's masjid, it's, it's a very nice experience. So everything is going back to that place. Is it because you remember the people that went on this journey? Is it because you remember, you know, not even you remember. The, there's a breeze that came from the direction of it, which we'll spend some time on. Or is it because you were out and the lightning flashed, and the li- the direction that the lightning flashed in was the direction of Medina? It's not even, you know, it's 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 much subtler than just right in front of you. Um, this is like reminds me of Imam Abu Hanifa, He used to say that not uh, a single day passed from the death of his parents or his teachers that he makes dua for them every day and then he would say that he doesn't when he's in his home he doesn't extend his feet in the direction of his teacher's home now some people look at this as being extreme right it's not like it's required or something it's just his teacher is so beloved to him that he doesn't want to extend his feet in that direction Right. So this is then connecting the idea of places and how they, they affect us and so on So both of these again, point to the Prophet them. The idea here is that the lover, the one who is in love with someone else Or something else They're looking for any traces that they can of their beloved They're looking for any trace that they can of their beloved And so if the wind blows from that direction They might think like maybe I can get a scent or if the light flashes from that direction you get a memory or some sort of possibility that maybe you'll see the person or you'll see where they live or whatever it might be and so these things they spark hope and they spark thoughts and ideas and part of one of the things that we need to reflect on here is the idea of looking at more than just what's right in front of us so um, Developing the capacity, you know, this love and longing idea that he uses here Is very tangible Even for someone who hasn't experienced what it feels like to love the Prophet them in the way that we should Or to love Allah in the way that we should Everyone can probably understand, like, how they feel about someone they've loved And then they can extend it, right? And so using that example teaches us this, this concept of extending And in the example itself, there's an idea of extending, and so this really um, very very important to be able to see beyond our feet. Very important spiritually, very important politically, very important socially, very important just in life. You know, like, and and you have things that help you do this. You know, we're we're gonna make mistakes. I'm just thinking about one right now, not in the notes you're going to make mistakes. When you're trying to understand things, you're trying to look forward, you're trying to make a decision that's going to have consequences in the future, eventually you're going to make mistakes in that regard. You might do something wrong. One of the safeguards that we have, we have two major safeguards in Islam against those kind of mistakes. The first, ma- and they're, they're related to each other, the first major safeguard is istikhara, asking Allah to give you guidance. Oh Allah, I'm trying I want to do this thing, you know more than I know, and you are able and I'm not able and I want to do this thing. If this thing is good for me, then in this life and the next, then facilitate it for me and make it easy for me. And if it's not, then get it away from me and get me away from it, and give me the good of this life, whatever it might be, and make me pleased with it. It's so the du'a basically. Right? So you're asking Allah actively to guide you to do that which is going to have long term good. If good for me in this life and the next, right? the other area of it that's related to istikhara this prayer of asking guidance uh, and also protects us from making mistakes is shura you know to to take consultation to ask people and I, I think you know there was cause for reflection on this today and there's never any shortage of cause for reflection on it I just I think it's so sad that part of our modern culture especially here is that we don't like to ask people things and that's just it's just a bust. I mean you just it just ends up messing up your life. There's so many people that know, so many people that have perspective, there's so many doesn't mean you have to follow them. Doesn't mean you have to submit to them and everything that they say, doesn't mean you have to take it without thinking about it or anything like that. It just means that you ask questions. So I don't understand where I should live. So for example, when we were supposed to live when we were supposed to come move to the LA area it took shura from a number of people, some of whom were in this room, about where to live. She's like, I don't know, this place is, even though I grew up here. <laughs> I grew up, we ended up moving into the same city that I grew up in. But it, you ask questions. And so you go to study, you ask questions. You're going to make a job decision, you ask questions. You go to people who have more knowledge and experience. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, Sometimes we feel like, no, we have to figure it out ourselves or whatever it might be. But understand, and part of that too is understanding the resources that we have, it helps us in other ways as well We understand the resources that we have as a community when we learn how to take shura from each other And there's barakah in shura, there's blessings in shura I mean the Prophet sallallahu took shura Do you think he, he had to? He's establishing a sunnah and They go outside in the battle of Badr, right? And he, he asked them, you know, they go out on the mission it's a small number of people and then it turns out that it's about to become a war. And it's about to become a battle and the Prophet asked them, you know, like, what do you guys want to do? What do you think? takes their shura and he actually follows the shura, happened also in Uhud. You know, should we go out of the city or should we not go out of the city for this battle? Right? So it happened in Uhud as well. And the Prophet them, would do that. He would take consultation. So these things help us to uh, not make mistakes. And, and of course we're still going to make mistakes Does not mean we're going to be 100% correct? It just means that we're lowering our possibility of being wrong And also building our relationships at the same time So this is one of them, right? So you're looking beyond When we're looking beyond uh, One of the things that comes to mind is How Ibn Qayyim talked about gratitude uh, Gratitude in relation to also the issue of Tafakkur, um, contemplation so he said, contemplation—it uh, has levels. This is this is a very Subhanallah. Sometimes you read something and it sticks with you, and you use it for years and years and years. Like this is one thing. Long before we ever went to Egypt, I read this, and it's like such Subhanallah, very deep. It says there's levels of contemplation. Okay, so the idea here is then when we're trying to look beyond, there's steps at which we can look beyond, and how we do so. The first level of contemplation, meditation, reflection is that you physically sense something. So you see it, maybe you see a red carpet or you smell an incense or you hear a voice. You physically sense it, okay? The second step of the contemplation is that you recognize the physical beauty of that thing. Okay? You recognize the physical beauty of that thing. So you look at the red rug and you see the red rug and then you say mashallah that's a very beautiful rug or you don't even say mashallah because we're on stage two it Says everyone is unique, everyone shares stage two Muslim or non-Muslim, believer or not believer you look at the rug and you say that's a cool, it's a beautiful rug looks really nice stage three is you look at it and you recognize its beauty and that helps you to recognize the beauty in the creator of all things so you look at it and you say wow that's a beautiful rug SubhanAllah, you know that Allah is the creator of all things and everything beautiful that we experience is from the infinite source of His beauty. So then it takes you now to Allah, right? This third stage of the reflection or contemplation. Fourth stage is to turn stage three into your never-ending habit. So stage three is only for believers. Stage 4 is only high-level high believers So basically if you It means that you get to the point That every single thing you see You see Allah in it Not in the sense that Allah is material, of course But that you see sibghat Allah You see like the imprint Of Allah in everything Everything takes you back to Allah And you do that so regularly that you stop thinking about anything else Which doesn't make you dysfunctional Don't misunderstand It doesn't make you dysfunctional It doesn't mean you're like wandering in the streets of South LA and you're like staring at the sky and whatever, you only see Allah. But you're functioning, but in your functioning you only see Allah. And we're going to come to this uh, as well in, in some other things. It applies to other areas of life as well. You know, seeing beyond. So for example, you have this, uh, people say for example, sometimes you lose the battle, but you win the war. Right? Sometimes you lose the battle, but you win the war. You're looking ahead. You have to give up on this one. It's very important in human relations. (laughs) Human relationships. Sometimes you're in a conversation, you're in something with someone, you just realize, you know what? There's like a brick wall right here. And I'm not on the other side of the brick wall yet, so I'm just giving up this battle. I lost this one. Maybe, inshallah, five years from now, I'll get somewhere with it. Right? But you, you, you realize that there's... You look to the long term. Second thing that people say is sometimes you lose the argument and you win the heart. So there's a story of Imam Hassan al-Banna Allah That he was giving a lecture one time And he quoted a hadith And someone stood up in the lecture And they said this hadith that you just quoted This hadith is weak Why are you giving us weak hadith and all of this stuff And then he was just like Okay alhamdulillah khair. You know? He didn't say anything to the person He kept going Kept going giving the lecture whatever. He didn't comment on it at all There's another funny story on this I'll tell you in a second Uh so he didn't comment on it later on he invites this person to his home he, they're, they're just sitting down they're talking whatever in the bookshelf's nearby he tells the brother he says you know can you grab this book from the bookshelf and open it to the page that's marked and he said yeah and he opens it he looks at it he's like you see the hadith that's here he says yeah I see the hadith he says this is the same hadith like he realizes this is the hadith that he had corrected him on right he says you see what it says right like it says that it's actually not a weak hadith that it's reliable and so on and so forth And then the guy said, how come you didn't say anything? Like, you knew this was the case, why didn't you correct me? When I publicly humiliated you, why didn't you respond and correct me? And he told him this this idea. Sometimes you lose the argument, but you win the heart. So he lost the argument on that day. But down the road, he's able to have some space for it. The funny story on the hadith was another shaykh. He was one time giving a lecture and someone told him, you know, how do we know this hadith that you're quoting is reliable? He told him, if I tell you the chain of narrators, will it satisfy you? Can you, if I give you the chain of narrators and you'll be comfortable and happy? He said, yes, I'll be comfortable. He says, okay, it's on so-and-so who heard it from 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 the Prophet. So I said them. He said, are you happy now? He said, alhamdulillah, I'm happy now. He said, good, those are the names that are on the wedding invitation that I have in my pocket. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> you don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> just the names on the wedding invitation, he told him that this person heard it from this person, heard it from the Prophet. Say something, you're happy now? Okay, you're happy now. It's complete. Sometimes people are just, they want to argue. Which also sometimes is a reason to lose a battle and try to win a war. The third thing that this conjures up is the statement of Imam al Rahimahullah. It's a very, very scary statement because it's so hard to do. And he said, Al-Alim al-Rabbani. He said the the godly scholar Is the one who answers the questions While looking at what their consequences are Where is the answer leading? Not just what is the answer right now But where is the answer leading? Uh, There's many examples of this The most tangible example is the next point Which is a time when Ibn Abbas Was approached by a man And the man asked him um, is there Toba? is there repentance For the one who kills somebody And he said yes And then a second person came And he said is there repentance for, some, for the one who kills somebody And he said no So then his students were like Those are two different answers To the same question <laughs> uh, uh, Whatever it is I forget right now It's, it's escaping me So it, it, does the person who kills someone else Can they have Toba? He said, yeah, the first person who I said, he doesn't have Tawbah, he came to me and I saw in his eyes anger. That he hadn't actually gone and killed somebody yet, he wanted to go kill somebody. And he's asking if he can have Tawbah, so I told him no. And the second person came to me and he asked, can the person who killed somebody have repentance? And I saw regret and sadness and remorse in his eyes, so I told him yes. Now, in in the end, the general rule is that Allah can forgive. The general rule is that Allah can forgive anything regardless of what the person did as long as they ask for forgiveness and they make amends for what they did if it deals with the rights of another person before they die. It can be forgiven. Common thing we see amongst young Muslims is they don't believe that Allah can forgive them. It's a very strange thing. It's a very problematic thing theologically to believe that Allah can forgive you but it's also just a strange thing pastorally that people should know that they can turn the page and go back to Allah regardless of what the situation was. So you see in this case that Ibn Abbas has asked the same question. The question he's looking at not only what's going to happen, wh- what the technical answer to the question is, but what that's leading to later on. Okay, So it's the idea of looking beyond. And this comes up in many areas of Islamic studies. So I'll give you some examples. Uh, one of the areas where this comes up in Islamic studies is in usul fiqh So usul fiqh is... Um, Basically, the philosophy of Islamic law. Um, if you're trying to find out a normative ruling on something, what is the methodology that you follow in figuring that out? That methodology is usool fiqh. So one of the areas in this study is secondary evidences. If you don't have something directly from the Qur'an, you don't have something directly from the hadith of the Prophet and you're looking now at the secondary considerations, What are what are here? So two of those things... Are Masanaurana and Seiya. And they're, they're like uh, two sides of a hand, I guess you could say. They, they complement each other. So Masanamorsrah is the idea that there's not a clear evidence on something, but it has good for the Muslims. So it takes the ruling of being acceptable, because there's good in it. It's going to lead to something good. Uh, in the general view of Islam So we take it Like the example that's usually used for this in, in books Is um, uh, Is the c- compilation of the Mus'haf The combining The putting of the Qur'an into one book the com- Putting the Qur'an into one book Didn't happen in the life of the Prophet wa It was written in all kinds of different places And held in different places Then after his death it was brought together In one text So that act of bringing it together in one text falls under this category. Because that act doesn't have a specific ruling on it, but it's necessary in order to preserve the greater good. Okay, so the other side of it, is those things that get stopped because they're gonna lead to something bad. So it's the opposite of it. It's not necessarily that it's going to, it's not necessarily that you have a direct ruling on it. But, it's just something that, you know, you can look at where it's going to lead, and it probably should be avoided. So, again, it leads you to different things. Uh, an example of this would be for a, for a good one, I think, is if someone asks, uh, my son or daughter is going to college, should I let them live in the dorms? And my answer would be no. <laughs> Maybe USC might be an exception because I have a Muslim floor, but in general, no. You do not live in the regular dorms. Is there a specific reason, like is there a hadith that says you shouldn't live in dorms when you go to college campuses? No. But there's a lot of ill that happens in the dorms of college campuses. Um, I, as an immediate um, experiencer of this, like I had at least five or six immediate neighbors in my dorms on campus that would get high at least five times a day. So. like a lot of weed to be around unnecessarily Uh, and and many many other things that we've seen as as chaplains dealing with questions that people have brought a lot of very disturbing things that people have gone through but the point here is where it leads to has a consideration Uh, the second area is in the rulings of haram so sometimes people this is something people don't always know there's two types of haram in general It's not, very few things in Islam are black and white. This is point number one. There's some black and whites, like we believe in one God, we believe in messengers, we believe in books, that we're going to die, that we're going to be held accountable. All these kind of that we pray five times a day. There's a lot of things that are clear, but there's a lot of things that are not. And even if they're clear, sometimes there's competing interests. So you might be in a situation where you only have two possible actions, and both of them are haram. So what do you do? Are they both equal? Probably not. Because even in the haram there's levels. And even in the obligatory there's levels. And this, there's, any, there's tons and tons of evidences for this. It's its own field of study called fiqh of priorities. Fiqh al Um But suffice it to say there's levels. So part of it is in haram. right? In, in the haram itself there's that which is haram in and of itself. And there's that which is haram because of what it leads to. Okay, So we'll take an example Drinking alcohol is haram in and of itself Correct? You can't drink alcohol because there's an inherent harm In the actual act of drinking alcohol right? It's a direct harm related to that act itself So it's haram li-thatihi In and of itself Then there's the haram li-ghairihi For other than itself So for example We know from the hadith of the Prophet That it's haram To sit at a table where alcohol is being served or consumed. Even if you're not consuming it. Right? There's a hadith about this. So, is that because sitting at that table is in and of itself haram? No. It's because of what it leads to from the behaviors that you're around and the influences that you have and the kind of environment that you're in and so on and so forth. So it has a ruling, not, there's a rule, There's haram because of itself and because of what it leads to. Uh, but the point is in the end, we're, look, we're talking about again the issue of looking beyond. Looking beyond just what's in front of you, you have it in the rulings themselves as well. Uh, another area where this comes up in the rulings, that has consequences by the way in fatwa. You don't have to necessarily go there right now, but those distinguishes, they, they actually matter. <laughs> so don't think that they don't matter, they actually matter when you're weighing other things. So number four is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or number three, um, Allah talks about in the Qur'an, وَمَنْ yadhim شَعَاءِ That whoever glorifies the monuments of Allah, then it is from taqwa in your heart. Okay, so this is a very interesting concept. Very, very interesting concept. So what's being talked about here is Allah is praising those who magnify The monuments or the symbols of Allah or the symbols of Islam, that's a sign of their faith. Okay? Why?
1: It's the issue of what it
0: leads to. It's the issue of what it leads to. If you magnify in your heart that which is related to the faith, it increases your faith. But if you degrade in your heart that which is related to the faith, directly related to the faith, it can chip away at your faith. So let me give you a very practical modern example for American Muslims. Uh, and this is why this came up. I see why people probably remember this khutbah. Um, the question of, I'll give you two. One of them is the issue of the masjid being un And the other issue is how we look at scholars. Both of these are very much related. Okay? So the masjid obviously is one of the greatest symbols of Islam. I mean there's there's no doubt about that that the masjid is a great great symbol of Islam now what hap- and, and and there's a balance here because the symbol if the symbol is lost people's faith is hurt so if the symbol is messed up and it needs reform it needs to be reformed so there's some level of critical conversation that needs to happen Otherwise, it's not going to get reformed, and as long as it's not reformed, it hurts people's faith. So this is a problem. The other side of it is, if all you do is bash the thing, and it's automatically assumed that every situation was bad, then it becomes, it also hurts people's faith. So when you make people, when when your discourse automatically makes people have a sensitivity to a masjid, Regardless of whether or not they've experienced anything bad, regardless of what they've heard, regardless of what's going on in that space, regardless, it actually keeps perpetuating itself and it hurts people's faith. Uh, Now, that, again, is not to say that we shouldn't have some sort of critical conversation or fix things and so on and so forth, but that we should be conscious of that. Uh, Because it was very frustrating for me, I'll tell you, (laughs) like bluntly, as an imam. To hear a lot of the conversation, like people are always, well misadgered this and this and this and this and this and this. I'm like, but you live here, like down the street, and none of that happens here. And you don't come here. So like, there's a pro- there's, there's something else wrong. There's another issue here. If everything you're complaining about the masjid doesn't occur in the masjid that's actually closest to you, and you don't go to that masjid, there's, you can see that there's different layers of issues happening. Right. The second one that's related to this is an. Go ahead.
1: Just to say someone posted recently um, that uh, in order to be unmasked, you have to at least first have been mosked. Mm-hmm. and so um, <laughs> so with a lot of the discussion around like masajid, um there should be like you said critical feedback, but masajid cannot be reformed if if there is no presence whatsoever at them, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then um, uh, I guess the other thing that I'm re- reflecting on it, is that it almost became like a fad to dislike the masjid. Mm-hmm. So you were like a cool person if you didn't like the masjid and you were a cool Muslim if you didn't like scholars. And you just, you're just cool for not like it's like the masjid and the scholar became almost like the establishment when uh, you know for civil rights activism. You know and it's um, and I think like that's especially in Southern California or in California coming from like sort of a socialist activist background, <laughs> you know that's that's where a lot of critical pedagogy are. What was that? Yeah. Critical pedagogy
0: gone wild. Yeah,
1: yeah. So there's... I mean, there's there's valid concerns, but if it, it, for it to become its own culture is almost like they don't want to... S- you don't want to see a cure. You know what I right. mean?
0: Right, because if there's a cure, then you don't have anything to complain about anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're building your community around the people who are complaining about it. <laughs> so now you have a problem. You don't have anywhere to belong. So anyway, I mean, there's... I don't think it's... Uh, I don't want anyone to misunderstand, these are big issues, we're just tipping on them not to like give the end-all answer on this, There's a, and, and, and not to make it black and white either. There's a, there's a lot on these things. The second one that's very common in American Muslim uh, life is related to people of knowledge, so it's it's very similar. People of knowledge are a symbol of Islam in the end. You can like it or you can not like it, it doesn't really matter. but. As soon as you go outside, you, the immediate answer to this, go outside to the interfaith world and try to interact in the interfaith world without being having a title that indicates that you're from clergy, quote-unquote. They don't look at you the same. They want someone who's clergy. Even if your clergy requires six years of study and theirs requires nine months, it doesn't matter. As long as you have the title, you're all the same. So the symbol matters. Symbol matters. And so, again, you have that balance of, being critical and holding people to a certain standard, but at the same time, uh, like basically, if you're if, if the criticalness results in the impossibility of any sort of solution, then it's a, it's a problem. So, you just be being thinking about these things, about consequences. Um, Allah subhanahu wa taala the Prophet also says, Allah does not look at your shapes and your forms, but He looks at your heart and your deeds. Right, that Allah is concerned with, not N- n- not only you know certain outward rules but also what 's going on internally the internal side really matters okay so i 'll give you an example from the Arabic language and we move on from this point okay and this one's kind of important so the Arabic language one of the nice things that 's about it is that it automatically conjures up fields of meaning rather than just one thing so it's 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 something that's very from what I understand related to like the age of a language that when a language is more ancient it has kind of like wider fields of deduction um, derivation and and meanings and so on so Arabic is very very vast in that regard and one example of this is the word uh, Alameen we use this as the only example and we move on but there's so many examples of this so when you look at how Surah Al-Fatiha starts we said Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen The Allah, all praises to Allah who is the Lord of the worlds Alam, it looks familiar, right? It's very similar to Alim And it's very similar to Ilm It all has the same root This root of Lam Meem And the root has to do with um, knowledge But it also has to do with Knowledge has to do with also part of the root Which is Alam Alam just means to like indicate something so something can be an alam, it's like an indicator of it Or it can be an alama, which is an indicator of something It's a symbol So all of this stuff is related So how do you get knowledge of something? You have to be like pointed towards it, right? So this is how all of these these words are interrelated And then when you say that Allah is the Lord of alameen He's the Lord of all of the worlds Part of the usage of this particular term to describe the universe, or the, to describe the creation, is to say that there is, a, there is like an arrow in everything in the creation that points back to Allah. Okay. Okay. Everything in the alam has an alam that points back to ilm of alam al-ghuyub. You say this, it's a little bit complicated. Everything in the world has a sign that gives you knowledge of the one who knows all things and all of those words are from the same root so you see how like one word automatically pops up all of this thing okay so again on that idea of looking beyond we're good I think between the two lines is also asking himself about uh, the memory of place we talked about and then the second one that comes up is is it because of the breeze that's coming from Kazlima, right or is it because of the breeze that's coming from this place or is it because of the lightning that came from the sky? So, the thing about being deeply in love with something or someone is that it takes over your life, right? It just takes over everything. So, if someone is deeply in love with the prophets on the long they will send them, that love is going to permeate everything that they do. It's going to permeate all the decisions they make. It's gonna. They're going to see the prophets I send them wherever because they're gonna. They're always looking. Uh, they're consumed by it And they're consumed by it so much That it comes out all the time So one of the places you see this very commonly Is with converts I know I did this I drove my family crazy So it didn't matter what conversation was happening Somehow that conversation led us back To why Islam is the truth <laughs> And why the prophet Was the prophet of God And why Christianity is wrong And all these other things right? Combat mode Everything because like you're a new convert and your whole world has changed and everything is about Islam now So every single conversation becomes about Islam And I was straight up asked this question Like can we have a conversation where you don't bring that up? <laughs> can there be anything that we even talk about where that doesn't come up? I, I thought we were talking about food, how do we get over there? You know. so, but this is the thing is that when you love something, it overcomes and it flows everywhere one of the stories I remember And this was one of the brothers we studied with He told me this story He said he used to know a guy who was also a convert And when he was an early convert The biggest thing he was concerned about Was the Qur'an And he said this brother No matter where you found him Or what was going on You found with him A translation of the meaning of the Qur'an And he was always reading it He said every single conversation you have with him He's able to bring a verse from the Qur'an Because the Qur'an now Has completely occupied his world Right Completely occupied his world so when he's in that world, every conversation, there's a verse, there's a reference, Yeah, but this story's in that place, this, He said it was a beautiful thing. He said, eventually this guy got very concerned with different groups. Where there is this group, they're the Sufis, and there's this group they're the Sufis, and there's this group, they're a different type of Sufi, and there's this group, and they're the movement people, and there's this group, and they're this, and there's this group, and they're that, and they're whatever. All of these groups. He said then after that some time passed He said whenever you have conversation with them. It was never about the Quran anymore None of the references from the Quran happened It was always like polemics you know, This and that and these people are wrong And these ones are right and all this stuff He said one time he asked the brother He said you know actually I remember Like a while back When you were only reading the Quran and that was your thing Every conversation there was stuff from the Quran He said but now it's all this other stuff You know and he said the brother looked at him, and he started crying. He realized it like, yeah, you know what? You're right. This is what took over my world. Like what used to take over my world was the Quran, but now it's this stuff, party politics, and everything else is taking over my world. So this idea then of tabahur, it's a very interesting word. Again, in Arabic, when they say like someone is 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 very very knowledgeable, they say tabahur you fin know, which means like. This person um, enveloped themselves in the ocean of learning. right? So they enveloped themselves in the ocean of learning so much so that it's always flowing. So they always say, like the, the proverb that's always said is The knowledge does not give you a part of it unless you give all of yourself to it. You're not going to get anything. And even though I was reading this morning about how the early scholars, they would always recommend that you leave your hometown, when you want to go learn, So, because what happens is, if you're in your hometown, your ideas and your thoughts are spread in so many different places, and when ideas and thoughts are spread in too many different places, they're not capable of understanding deeper meanings, that's what he said, very beautiful statement, right, the idea is that someone has tabahur, they've enveloped themselves in all of this knowledge so much that it's Bahru Nyesil. You know they'll say that the person, the scholar himself, is an ocean. It's just flowing. It just keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. Um, there's a there's an interesting tale. Maybe this is a, uh, a good. How long? It's probably a good place to stop. Um, we'll we'll finish with the wind. So right now we're on the point of the wind, right? We're talking about the wind and how it. Um, when, when things encompass you. And again, this issue of things being totally part of you and then they're coming out and then we were also talking about the wind. So the, the wind here, I'll make two points on it and then we'll stop here and then next time we'll we'll continue with the light. So these images have very, they're, they're broad realms of symbolism, right? So wind is a huge symbol and then light is a huge <coughs> symbol. So two points on, on wind. Um, the first is that Wind is used in the Quran usually uh, in singular or plural. So okay, they, they're sometimes rih and sometimes riah. You know, sometimes there's singular and sometimes there's plural. Generally, when it's used in the singular in the Quran, it's referring to punishment. And generally, when it's used in the plural form, it's referring to blessings. Because wind can bring both, right? Wind can be needed in order to spread pollination and like. Bring clouds maybe over that are gonna bring some rain or whatever it might be, you need wind sometimes. But wind can also be massively destructive, right? And this is why the Prophet when the du'a of the Prophet for rain is related to bring this rain upon us and give us the good of it, you know? Like don't let it don't let it overcome us basically, because you might need it, but if you have too much of it, it's also a problem. And so, so it's used in this way uh, in the Quran. In this v- in this verse of the poem, it's "amhabatun rihu min i khalima." So it's singular. So there's an, uh, there's a, there's a point here that like love is a is a double-edged sword. Love can be something that's very positive and very beautiful, and love can also be something that's very painful. Uh, but you know you can't get rid of it because it's so important either way. The last thing that we'll cover is this little story. So there's this story. I don't know if you guys will like it, but I like these things. Um, And I don't think it came up on here because that didn't give me my footnote. So let me get it out of the laptop. Don't worry, it's already open. And this story is called The Tale of the Sands. Okay? The Tale of the Sands. It's like a little... I like teaching fables. People don't really use them so much anymore, but I like them. I like Aesop's Fables. It's a great book, by the way. If you read it as a kid, I would encourage going back and reading it again. mean, <laughs> It's a whole different world of meanings when you get older. So, the story is called The Tale of the Sands. And I think it gives like a little bit of an insight as to the wind and kind of the the magic, so to speak, that's related to the wind. So, the story is... A stream from its beginnings in faraway mountains passed through a great variety of countryside and then it reached the sands of a vast desert. So you have a stream. The stream reaches the sands of a vast desert. And since it had crossed every other barrier, it was confident that it could cross the desert. However, no matter how hard it tried, the stream always disappeared into the sand. So you have the stream, right? The stream's going through all these things. Eventually the stream comes to this vast desert. It says, you know what, I could cross this too. It keeps trying, just disappearing into the sand. It was convinced that its destiny was to cross the desert, but it couldn't find a way, and it became upset and frightened. And then it heard a whisper from the desert sand. The sand said, the wind crosses the desert, and so can the stream. The wind crosses the desert, and so can the stream. The stream was amazed by the sand's whisper and started to talk. I have been trying as hard as I can, and anyhow, the wind can fly, and I'm I'm not the wind, I can't fly. Like this is, we're two different things. And it's, you know, off, says, the, the sand says that you going your usual way, you're not going to be able to cross. And if you keep doing it, you're going to disappear or you'll become a marsh. And you have to allow the wind to allow you to carry you to your destination. Okay, so the sand is telling the water. So, but how can it happen? The sand says, by allowing yourself to be absorbed into the wind. The stream didn't like this idea. It had never been absorbed before and was frightened of losing its identity. It thought, if I lose my identity, can I get it back again? Or will I be left formless, wandering with the wind forever? Um, If I go up there, what's going to happen? The sand, sensing the stream's fear, spoke. This is one of the wind's jobs. It takes up water as vapor and carries it over the desert, and then it lets it fall again, falling as rain. The water again becomes a stream. So the job, of one of the jobs of the wind, is to take the water up into the wind and carry it to a new place and then let it drop as rain and it becomes a stream again. So he said, how can I be sure of that? He said, it is. And if you don't believe it, you can't become anything more than a marsh. You can never be a stream again. right? Like you're not, If you don't believe it, you're stuck in this place. And you're never going to get past this place. And he says, it's so, and, but you can't, but I cannot remain the stream I am today. It says, you cannot. You can't stay the way that you are. It's, it's past that. He says, on hearing this, vague echoes began to awaken inside the stream. And the stream decided that this was the right thing to do. To, somewhere in its memory, back in the days, like maybe it was lifted by wind before, and it forgot. Now it's being re-inspired to be lifted by the wind. So with a leap of faith the stream let go and it began to raise as vapor into the welcoming arms of the wind, being lifted gently upwards and over the desert, falling softly as it reached the roof of a mountain many, many miles away after becoming rain, and then, a sh- and then it became a stream again. The stream was able to remember because it went through such difficulty this time and it realized its true identity. The stream was learning and the, wind, the sand said we know it because we see it happen every day. Right? We see it happen every day. The sand knows. And they say this is why the journey of the stream of life is written in the sands. This is like this the story in the end. The journey of the stream of life is written in the sands because the sands have seen it. This stream goes up into the clouds, right? So the reason why I'm saying this is because the story is, I think, you can take any number of other lessons from it. But one of the things that you take from it is this imagery of the stream and it reaching the desert and it's struggling with itself and it's trying to get to this new place and it eventually lets go a little bit and when it lets go a little bit it rises above its difficulty and then it falls again right but you see in the imagery of it that the stream is carried up into the wind and then it carries for a distance so then you think about that in the context of the line of the poem which is asking is just, just that breeze is doing this to you Know, just the breeze is doing that. But if you think about a breeze, I mean, if it, I mean, think about if you go far beyond the breeze, right? Say, for example, the breeze is coming from the direction of the ocean. So just feeling the breeze from the direction of the ocean, you think about the ocean, and you think about what lays beyond the ocean. You think about like, oh, say you're on the East Coast, right? Or say you're in the Mediterranean, and you feel a breeze that comes from the direction of Saudi Arabia or Arabia. And then you say... You know, that's the direction of the Prophet eyes, It makes you cry. Right, this is what's happening in the poem, saying, is it just that breeze that's coming from the direction of Kaldima of that you're crying right now? Because that breeze carries so much. The breeze carries memories, it carries history, it carries um, reflections. It, it, it just All of that is coming with it. All of that experience is coming with it. So when I feel that breeze, it takes me all the way back. We talked about that last time. About the breezes in Irvine and how they would remind us of Cairo and just how again that experience of place so these are all tied in together uh, we'll stop here this time halfway through the second line uh, and then we'll, we'll continue next time all of them are not going to be as long as this just so you know like all of the all the, each line of the poem will not be this long like the two or three lines after this are all pretty much the same so there's not a whole lot more to say about them we just kind of go through them but uh, each, there will be varying lengths, inshallah. We'll continue, not next week, the week after, inshallah. Go Do you want to, you, you were raising your hand? I didn't raise it, but I think you uh, knew what I wanted to. <laughs> no, I think you raised it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> There's the alamat. Okay, so, um, nothing, I just, I just wanted to add a comment,
1: a comment to this. one. Um... You know, uh, when you really love someone, everything reminds you of them. That was what I the to you in terms of the verses. And how um, in terms of the, the rules of, of uh, the contemplation, how um, everything which, you know, uh, eventually should be a reminder of Allah mm-hmm. uh, until we can, until we're just constantly in, our, in a state of his remembrance. And then what um, that actually reminded me of was what you had said from last week, where um, a The Prophet was telling a companion that uh, if you do a portion, he says how much of your dhikr Mm. do you send salawat on me, right? And I thought something that's really interesting about the wording of that is that sending salawat on the Prophet is a form of the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself. Mm. And um, how when we remember the Prophet, it's also remembering Allah and how um, not only can you look at things maybe and let it be a reminder of allah but we can also look at things and let that also be a reminder of the prophet muhammad as well um and that is something that will then inspire which is a part of it. um so that's one of the things that i was thinking of and how um like in this masjid is kind of a, a beautiful example in when we were driving here, the green dome of the like, masjid, for some reason I was so flawed earlier, I always thought this masjid was blue. Was it ever blue? Culver
0: City, I think, is blue. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I was
1: here like years ago, and I could have sworn it was blue. But anyways, um, the, when we were coming, and I realized the flyer for this class shows the masjid in with a green dome, and we're driving close, we're coming to the masjid, and it's like, whoa, there's a green dome, just like masjid it's Nebuli. So there's, um, like in the, it's just, it's, it's nice to allow ourselves to see the, be reminded of the prophet and to, um, things that remind us, things that are related to the prophet that remind us of him, like a green dome, mm-hmm. or the colored green gold, or like the, um, the full moon, for example, mm-hmm. or in this poem it's talking about a breeze, you know, like mm-hmm. can a breeze remind us of the Prophet, because they said like, he was as gentle as the wind you know, mm-hmm. or like he was as generous as the, as generous are, as the free as the blowing wind. wind. Yeah. You know, these are all things that can sort of remind us of the
0: Prophet. Yeah, yeah I mean, next time, not next week, the week after, when we get to light, Um We'll talk about a lot of that stuff like, Because light is a, very commonly a metaphor for belief and disbelief And guidance and misguidance And how the Prophet Sallallahu mm-hmm. was a light to mankind mm-hmm. As well as Allah being mm-hmm. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is also Siraj and Munira You know in the Quran that he's, he's a, a clear lamp and for people to follow as well And how having a deeper understanding of his life and his quality and his characteristics and so on it, it builds that, um, basically it builds a a, a a topography for us that allows us to have more experiences in life that will remind us of Him, right? So, yes, inshallah, absolutely. Anyone else have anything they want to add or any comments? Like, we have some time, you know, people can get food or whatever and then we'll pray um I don't know if they already prayed or upstairs. I don't know how there's I haven't gotten a full understanding of their system. <laughs> but we'll uh, we'll just uh, we can uh, like shortly before five o'clock after we're about to clean up and everything else, I'll go up and pray Jama'ah if anyone wants to do that, or if other people want to go, they can do that inshaAllah. So wa Muhammad wa